Today's episode is sponsored by Tigo. For most of us, indemnity insurance is one of our biggest costs of practice. But when was the last time you took a look at the coverage and compared your premium with others? Many of us are still with the same insurer we joined in med school or intern year. Thousands of doctors have made the switch to Tigo and benefited from their personalised approach to pricing. You will also get an extra two months free in your first year. If you are new to private practice, you might even qualify for four years of discounted premiums. Tigo offers competitive premiums, quality cover and 24-7 support backed by top medico legal advisors. Get a free quote and discover why thousands of doctors are insured by Tigo by visiting tigo.com.au. Hello listeners and welcome to Deep Reps, a podcast covering topics related to the Part 2 anaesthetic exam. I'm Dr Kate Steele. And I'm Dr Kate McCrossan. And today's episode is Do You Really Want to Hurt Me? where we discuss chronic post-surgical pain. As always, in this podcast, we represent our own views and not those of our employers or ANSCA. Until recently, there was no formally agreed upon definition for chronic post-surgical pain or CPSP. But with its addition to the World Health Organization's ICD-11 in 2019, we as clinicians have a better set of diagnostic parameters for chronic post-surgical pain. And particularly as it is now formally recognised within the ICD-11, the hope is that a greater recognition and understanding of this condition will allow for improvements in our management and treatment of these patients. Chronic post-surgical or post-traumatic pain encompasses one of six subcategories of chronic secondary pain, where we define chronic primary pain as a disease in itself, but chronic secondary pain is chronic pain where the pain is a symptom of an underlying condition. The formal definition of CPSP is as follows. Chronic pain that develops or increases in intensity after a surgical procedure or a tissue injury and persists beyond the healing process. For example, at least three months after the surgery or tissue trauma and is not better explained by another cause such as infection, malignancy or a pre-existing pain condition. CPSP includes chronic pain after spinal surgery, herniotomy, hysterectomy, amputation, thoracotomy, breast surgery, and arthroplasty. The pathophysiology of chronic post-surgical pain is a little murky and generally poorly understood, but here's what we know. Nerve injury has been implicated in the development of CPSP, but doesn't explain all instances of this type of pain. Remember, not all patients with CPSP experience neuropathic pain. In fact, not all patients with nerve injury experience pain at all. Many patients with nerve injury evidenced by numbness do not develop chronic pain. And those surgeries associated with nerve damage do often result in a higher incidence of CPSP. There are also surgeries not associated with nerve damage that result in CPSP. Central and peripheral sensitization are the most likely underlying factors in the development of CPSP. Now, when a patient undergoes surgery, the cutting and handling of tissues activates peripheral nociceptors, and stimuli from these nociceptors travel in the form of action potentials along primary afferent A delta and C fibers to the dorsal horn of the spinal cord, where they synapse with secondary afferent neurons at Rexed laminae 1 and 2. A beta fibers that transmit touch and pressure sensation synapse at lamina 3 and 4, and this is relevant a little later on. Lamina 5 comprises a group of secondary afferents called wide dynamic range neurons, and these are usually in a dormant state until sensitization occurs. And again, this is relevant a little later on. The main excitatory neurotransmitter at this synapse is glutamate, which binds to AMPA receptors. Of note, 
NMDA receptors are present within this chemical synapse but are not activated under acute noxious circumstances, and once again, this is relevant a little later on. Secondary afferent neurons then continue to carry these impulses via the contralateral ascending spinothalamic and spinoreticular pathways to higher centres like the brainstem reticular formation, periaqueductal grey matter of the midbrain, the thalamus, and of course the cerebral cortex. While these excitatory mechanisms are occurring to transmit stimuli to the brain, there are also inhibitory mechanisms within the spinal cord to dampen and impede this transmission. Ultimately, it is the balance of these excitatory and inhibitory pathways that determine the overall transmission of noxious stimuli to the brain, and it is the central processing of these inputs that then leads to the perception and experience of pain. Inhibitory mechanisms that dampen pain transmission include inhibitory GABAergic and glycinergic interneurons, descending inhibitory pathways from the brain, the production of endogenous opioids, and higher-order brain functions responsible for distraction and cognitive function. Peripheral sensitization is a process that occurs at the level of the tissues. Cytokines, bradykinin, and prostaglandins are released from injured and inflammatory cells at the site of tissue damage. This soup of inflammatory mediators activates peripheral nociceptors but also lowers their activation threshold, resulting in enhanced pain sensitivity. Keep in mind that this is different to the process that occurs in neuropathic pain in which damaged primary afferent A-delta and C-fibres begin to spontaneously generate action potentials, also known as ectopic inputs. The neuroplasticity observed in peripheral nociceptors is reversible and often eases off as tissue healing occurs and the disease process subsides. Peripheral sensitization is restricted to the site of tissue injury. Central sensitization, generally defined as an enhanced responsiveness of nociceptive neurons in the spinal cord to their normal afferent input, is a little more complex. Now we know that there are a number of different forms of functional, chemical and structural plasticity that can sensitise the central nociceptive system to produce pain hypersensitivity under both normal and pathological circumstances. In dorsal horn neurons, central sensitization can include one or more of the following changes. Development of or an increase in spontaneous neural activity a reduction in the threshold for activation by peripheral stimuli, increased responses to supra-threshold stimulation, and an enlargement of their receptive fields. Ultimately, previously sub-threshold synaptic inputs are recruited to generate an increased or augmented action potential output, a state of facilitation, potentiation, or amplification, and the reason that these cellular changes alter the system so profoundly is that normally only a small fraction of the synaptic inputs to the dorsal horn neurons contribute to their action potential output. Now, these changes result in central sensitization phenomena that we're sure you've heard of before. Wind-up is a frequency-dependent increase in the excitability of secondary afferents in the dorsal horn. In normal circumstances, NMDA receptors of the dorsal horn are blocked by magnesium iron, but with repeated activation of C-fibres as seen with the ongoing painful stimuli, this magnesium plug becomes dislodged, which allows glutamate to bind to and activate the NMDA receptor. This ultimately results in an amplification of the response of second-order neurons to stimuli. Allodynia or pain due to a stimulus that does not normally evoke pain occurs after the development of wind-up. The wind-up phenomenon induces and potentiates a wide dynamic range neuron response to each stimulus, and from here, subsequent sensory stimulation of A, beta, or touch fibres results in exaggerated wide dynamic range neural output. Remember, wide dynamic range neurons of the dorsal horn are normally dormant in the absence of sensitization. 
Long-term potentiation is the process by which synaptic connections between neurons become stronger or enhanced with frequent activation. In basic terms, the synapse changes. In the case of AMPA and NMDA receptors within the dorsal horn, the opening of NMDA receptors causing calcium influx, we see an activation of calcium-dependent signal transduction pathways, including protein kinases and gene transcription factors. This in turn causes changes like an increased insertion of larger numbers of AMPA receptors in the postsynaptic membrane, as well as an altered protein synthesis and trafficking. New AMPA receptors are more responsive to and thus more sensitive to glutamate and the cellular response may outlast the initial stimulus. There are many more cellular mechanisms by which central sensitization occurs and it would require an additional episode at least to discuss all of these. So because we just don't have time to deep dive into these, we're going to refer you to a great BJA education article called Transmission from Acute to Chronic Pain. The link is in our episode notes. When it comes to the progression of acute to chronic pain, we believe that the following steps occur. Firstly, the initiation of this progression most likely occurs in a situation where an individual is primed, for example, with pre-existing pain or susceptible as seen in inefficient diffuse noxious inhibitory control, a susceptible psychological state or genetic predisposition. Then an intense surgical stimulus induces both central and peripheral changes. And finally, maintenance of these intense nociceptive inputs from poorly controlled postoperative pain, peripheral nerve damage, and postoperative complications like wound infection then lead to a chronic pain state. As we've alluded to previously, there are risk factors for the development of chronic post-surgical pain. Pre-operative risk factors include pain of moderate to severe intensity that has been present for greater than one month, repeat surgery, psychological vulnerability, for example, a patient that is catastrophizing, preoperative anxiety, female sex, younger adults, workers' compensation surgery, a genetic predisposition, inefficient diffuse noxious inhibitory control, and opioid use, particularly if it's ineffective. Uh, so, Kate, before we continue on, yes. could you please quickly explain to me what inefficient diffuse noxious inhibitory control is? Sure. So, diffuse noxious inhibitory control it can be thought of as pain inhibits pain, where noxious stimuli like heat, high pressure or electrical impulses are applied to another remote body location and this input activates descending inhibitory pathways within the spine that can suppress firing of the convergent second-order sensory neurons within the dorsal horn that are associated with the afferent A-delta and c 5 imports from a site of injury. Basically, this reduces the pain from the site of injury, and I suppose a good example of this in action is acupuncture. Mm. So inefficient DNIC is where this mechanism, where pain inhibits pain, doesn't actually work. Okay, cool. So the only intraoperative risk factor for the development of CPSB is a surgical approach associated with a risk of nerve injury. Post-operative factors predisposing to the development of CPSB include poorly controlled acute or subacute pain of moderate to severe intensity, radiation therapy to the area, neurotoxic chemotherapy, depression, psychological vulnerability, neuroticism, anxiety, and pain and anxiety trajectories where patients with a constantly high acute pain trajectory and patients with unremitting high levels of anxiety are more likely to experience CPSB. So now that we've identified which patients are at risk for developing chronic post-surgical pain, let's look at what we can do as anaesthetists to reduce the risk of its development. So look, unfortunately, there are limits as to the techniques we can employ to reduce the risk of a patient developing chronic post-surgical pain. Now, Kate, you're much better at regional anaesthesia <laughs> than I am, so I'll let you discuss this. Okay, all right. Well, 
Well, first and foremost, a Cochrane meta-analysis on the prevention of CPSP via regional anaesthesia found benefits for three procedure types, and these were thoracotomy, mastectomy, and caesarean section. Epidural anaesthesia reduced the incidence of CPSP following open thoracotomy between 3 and 18 months post-op when compared to systemic analgesia alone with an NNT of 7. Any form of regional anaesthesia for breast cancer surgery was found to reduce CPSB 3 to 12 months after surgery compared to systemic analgesia alone with an NNT of 7, but paravertebral block specifically was affecting it reducing CPSB with an NNT of 11. As for cesarean section, four randomised controlled trials cumulatively found that any form of regional anaesthesia reduced CPSB from 3 to 8 months post-op with an NNT of 19. Unfortunately, for trials addressing regional techniques for many procedures, study design and technique are too varied to enable meta-analysis because of the heterogeneity, but there are some specifics worth mentioning. Firstly, continuous perioperative epidural infusion in patients undergoing open large bowel resection led to a lower risk of CPSP up to one year after surgery when compared to parenteral analgesia. Secondly, spinal anaesthesia when compared to general anaesthesia in both caesarean sections and hysterectomies reduced the risk of CPSP. There was no difference in risk between abdominal and vaginal hysterectomy. And lastly, perioperative epidural analgesia, uh, pre, intra and post-op, reduced the incidence of severe phantom limb pain after amputation up to 12 months post-op with an NNT of 5.8. And it is believed that this form of analgesia may be particularly useful preoperatively for patients experiencing severe pain in the limb to be amputated. A 2013 Cochrane meta-analysis showed a modest but statistically significant reduction in the incidence of chronic pain primarily in abdominal surgery with the administration of a ketamine infusion. When used preventatively and infused for greater than 24 hours, it was found to reduce the incidence of CPSP at three months post-op. At six months, there was also noted to be a reduction in CPSP when ketamine was infused both for greater than or less than 24 hours. Another meta-analysis found a reduction in chronic post-surgical pain with the administration of perioperative ketamine at both three and six months, but not 12 months. Of note, beneficial effects were not found with the epidural administration of ketamine. We know that high-dose intraoperative opioids, particularly remifentanil, are associated with opioid-induced hyperalgesia and increased pain and opioid use in the first 24 hours after surgery, and this may be associated with CPSP. Regarding the perioperative use of gabapentinoids pregabalin and gabapentin, two previous meta-analyses concluded that there was limited or no benefit in their use in the setting of significant clinical trial heterogeneity. Perioperative pregabalin administration doses reduce the incidence of chronic post-surgical neuropathic pain, however. Intravenous lignocaine infusions overall seem to show fairly positive results in the data. In breast cancer surgery, IV lignocaine prevents both acute postoperative pain as well as chronic postsurgical pain at three months post-op when compared to systemic analgesia alone. A meta-analysis of intravenous lignocaine across a range of different surgical procedures, but predominantly mastectomy, found a significant benefit in its reduction of CPSP at three months. A few other medications have been found to show benefit in very specific clinical situations. A course of venlafaxine, 37.5 mg per day, commenced pre-op and continued for 10 days post-mastectomy, was found to significantly reduce burning and stabbing pain after six months. In the Enigma 2 trial, subgroup analysis of the use of intraoperative nitrous oxide resulted in the prevention of CPSB in Chinese patients and patients with variants in the methylene tetrahydrofolate reductase gene, but there was no benefit in non-Chinese patients overall. 
Okay. So we've talked about the things that we can do as anaesthetists in an attempt to reduce the incidence and risk of patients developing chronic post-surgical pain. But it's worth mentioning that there are other interventions that don't necessarily involve anaesthetists, but that are associated with further risk reduction. These include modification of surgical approach, perioperative psychological interventions, and the development of transitional pain services, where these are pain services that aim to achieve the following, to optimise pain and opioid use prior to surgery, to create individually tailored intraoperative opioid-sparing analgesic plans, and to manage pain postoperatively beyond hospital discharge. ANSGA's Acute Pain Manual, Scientific Evidence, 5th edition, explores these in more detail if you're interested. So, uh, Kate, how much do you think about or plan for chronic post-surgical pain in your practice? Look, if I'm truly honest, I actually don't, unless it's for something where we know there is a definite association between the type of surgery and the presence of chronic post-surgical pain. But certainly going back and researching this topic It's making me think a lot more about Mm, it and the tiny little things that we can do in terms of tweaking our technique, particularly the drugs that we administer intraoperatively or offering patients regional anesthesia. I honestly think that I'm going to start rethinking the way I approach these things because there is a lot of evidence out there that it's not just thoracotomies, mastectomies and stenotomies and amputations that cause these problems. How about you? Yeah, I think that's exactly right. We spend a lot of time planning for acute pain. Exactly. And we also spend a bit of time distracted perhaps by people's chronic pain, which may or may not be post-surgical. Yeah. Uh, I certainly see that a little bit in patients who have had multiple surgeries, particularly after trauma. Yeah, of course. Um, but often we're distracted by people's, you know, chronic back pain. And we will be hopefully doing a future episode on the management of acute pain in patients with chronic pain. Oh, definitely. But in terms of that transition from acute pain to chronic post-surgical pain, yeah, I think uh, what we've done today has yeah. really opened my eyes and using the evidence that we have. We have a new ANSCA pain exactly. book, which is fantastic and exactly. is on my list of things to completely read. <laughs> Absolutely. Um, so, yeah, so I think it's great to cover this and things are, we may, it seems like things change very slowly in health. They do. But there are constantly things coming through. We know the translation of evidence into practice takes you know, eight to 10 years on average or even longer. And so, yeah, I'll be looking forward to um, having some key points out of this and having a read of the pain management book myself. Yeah, definitely. Mm. Definitely. I um, Something that I have to keep reminding myself when we talk about chronic post-surgical pain is that it's very much an out of sight, out of mind topic you know we don't see these patients three months Mm, down the track mm. in their surgical clinic so we're not aware of what's actually going on so I have to I'm going to try and be better at incorporating approaches to reduce chronic post-surgical pain into my technique I think it's really important and where we can make a difference I think we should definitely try I agree And yet again, we find ourselves at the end of another content-heavy but hopefully useful episode. This then begs the question, Kate, what have you learnt this week in anaesthesia? Well, recently I got some lovely positive feedback from one of my surgical colleagues about the way that I'd managed one of their patients. So the scenario was I had a very young patient who had never had surgery before who was absolutely terrified of the prospect of going in for any sort of procedure. Mm. And unfortunately this patient in their anxiety they were very upset, they were crying. And this had unfortunately set off a bit of shortness of breath in a patient who did have asthma. Mm-hmm. So basically what I did was I I was very, very sympathetic to this patient. While they were having some Ventolin, 
I was placing an IV. I gave some midazolam because I suspected that a lot of this shortness of breath was related mm. to anxiety. Mm. There was also some nausea that was related to anxiety. So I gave some on Dansetron as well. And I spent a lot of time just talking really calmly and really sort of easing the patient into everything I was doing, including the IV, because there was also some anxiety around, around intravenous access. And I just took my time, which I know drove my surgical colleagues absolutely insane, <laughs> but ultimately ended up with a patient that was much calmer mm. by the time we induced anesthesia and also who ha- frankly had a much better perioperative experience, so much so that this patient actually wanted that positive feedback to come back to me. And the surgeon was very, very kind and very happy to do that for this patient so Mm. again I know I've said previously sometimes it goes against the grain to not rush through these things but sometimes taking that extra effort and really sort of gently softly easing a patient into these things that terrify them can have a huge impact on them yes it does make your list run a little later but in terms of the patient's experience it can have a huge impact more than we can possibly imagine so out of curiosity Kate what have you learned this week in anesthesia yeah, look, we had an interesting journal club discussion at my hospital. Oh, um, do tell. Looking at it. Oh, look, you know, it's just an um, interesting article. So looking at recurrence of breast cancer after regional or general anesthesia, which has been a topic, you know, in mm. onco-anesthesia for some time, particularly in breast cancer, mm. and whether the presence of, um, you know, they looked at, you know, volatile anesthesia versus, te- not in this article, but, you know, mm. previously, it's been a lot of interest in whether our anesthetic technique can affect cancer recurrence. Yes, I have seen articles about various different things mm. that are can be implicated with recurrence. Yeah, and okay. there's just no good evidence that anything that we do, you know, influences recurrence one way or the other. Fair enough. Uh, and so, you know, it's, it's a really topic of great interest in the literature, but I'm not mm. sure, you know, there's definitely no evidence either way. And it was just an interesting discussion around this, you know. Yeah, I can imagine. Thinking about it from first principles, whether say two to three hours of anaesthetic in terms of someone's whole journey with cancer, mm. really how much impact does that actually have? Mm. Um, obviously you need to have, you know, an appropriate surgery and, and good course. surgery. But anyway, so that was an interesting um, – we can also put a um, link up to that article. It might even be a topic for a future podcast Maybe. Uh, if anyone's interested in that. So. Yeah, and look, I suppose it's good that we're asking these questions as to whether what we do does have an impact, but it's also reassuring sometimes to know that we do have that flexibility we can tailor things without having a detrimental impact on someone's cancer Mm. course. So that's really reassuring. Yeah. Well, that's all we have time for today. If you have any questions, comments or suggestions for topics or interviewees, you can email us on deepbreathspod at gmail.com. Please recommend the podcast to your colleagues and you can find us on all of your usual podcast platforms. We love receiving your emails and the suggestions for topics and interviewees are excellent. We're following all of them up, so watch this space for podcasts addressing these topics soon. As always, thanks for listening and we hope you can join us next time on Deep Breaths.